So, I want to start out with a little impromptu. Oh, yes, kids are dismissed for Calm Church. Not in the practice of this, so enjoy. So, start out with a little impromptu confession. You don't have to participate in this if you don't want to. Raise your hand if you are satisfied with your prayer life, where it stands. You'll see very many hands. That's pretty typical for the conversations I have about prayer with people. Uh, most Christians aren't happy with their prayer lives. Um, we don't pray often enough. We don't pray about the things that we want to pray about. We can't find the words to say what we want to say. We did, there's just all kinds of things that, that make us dissatisfied with where we stand in terms of our, our conversations with God. A lot of this and our dissatisfaction comes from some baggage that a lot of us carry in from past church experiences, the way we've been uh, brought up in the church where, you know, we were taught, you got to pray, you got to pray, you got to pray, you got to pray with enthusiasm, you got to pray with belief, with faith. Some of us were taught there's specific, you know, you got to pray in tongues, there's specific ways you have to pray. There's all kinds of different traditions we come from. The tradition I came from, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 was emphasized a lot. Uh, I don't think I included that one here. So it's a, used as a weapon almost against us, where it says, pray without ceasing. Paul says, you've got to pray. And so our teachers would talk about how as good Christian, you need to pray and you need to be enthusiastic and faithful and, and all of that. And so I grow up thinking, okay, I need to pray and I'm going to pray, but man, this seems... It's not, it's not doing, it's not bringing life to me. It's not bringing transformation to me like everybody, all my teachers always say it will. So it leads to a perpetual dissatisfaction with the status of my prayer life. Um, but the thing is, we tell people you need to pray and we just assume they're going to know how to do that instinctively. And what I've learned growing up is that's not true because prayer is a language that has to be learned. And just like any other language, if I leave you to your own devices to learn a language, you can, you can learn some things. You can kind of expose yourself to people who, who speak the language. You can, you, know, you can do some things. If you really invest yourself a whole lot, more than most of us have time to do, you might even could become fluent in it. But prayer is a language that has to be learned and it's not something we do instinctively. We were, told how, we were told that we need to pray, but we weren't taught the language of prayer in many of our cases. So, am I doing something here? Okay, we're good. Um, so, we were left to develop our own language of prayer because we, were, we weren't told how to do it. So, we listen to what we hear other people saying. Maybe we see some things in Scripture and we kind of create a hodgepodge and God hears that. Don't, don't, don't think that God's not hearing because it it's not good enough. God hears every inadequate prayer that we ever pray. And every prayer you will pray will be inadequate because we're human, right? God hears all of those. But we're putting together our own language of prayer and we haven't been taught um, in many of our cases, um, not to universalize too much, we haven't been taught how to do it. In fact, if, if, if somebody were to come up to me and say, how do I pray? My instinct is to tell them, well, you just talk to God. That would be my answer to the question, how do I pray? And that's true. You do talk to God. But what I've discovered is that that's the goal. 
That's, that's the end. We want to be in a position eventually, and maybe some of you are there. I mean, it's not an impossible goal that's been set before us, but we want to eventually be at the point where we can have an intimate conversation with God about anything in our lives, and we can listen to him as he directs us and, and instructs us. But that's the goal. That's not where you begin in learning how to pray. In fact, if we trust ourselves to just talk to God uh, without having any instruction, without having any, uh, any basis on, on how to know how to do that, what ends up happening a lot of times is we just end up recycling our own issues, the things that brought us to our knees in prayer in the first place. So anger, anxiety, fear, we end up sometimes just kind of recycling those without any transformation that's happening. And so what ends up happening is angry people pray angry prayers. Bitter people pray bitter prayers. Greedy people pray greedy prayers. Um, fearful people pray fearful prayers and so on and so forth. And I'm not saying that God can't hear all of those emotions. And in fact, God needs to hear all of those emotions in their rawest form. But what ends up happening the way we use prayer is I think sometimes we, we, we dig ourselves deeper into our anxiety and our fear and our anger because, because our prayer isn't con being conducted in a way that's designed to transform us. And so prayer does little good for us and we get frustrated with it. And sometimes it may even be harmful to us because it's perpetuating a negative emotional cycle for us. So to be formed and for us to be transformed through the practice of prayer, our prayers need to be something that we've been taught how to do right. We need wise input from outside sources. People outside of ourselves that are wise, that have learned, and can show us the way to prayer. So that's what we're going to talk about today with um, the idea of fixed hour prayer. Scott McKnight is a New Testament scholar, and he's written a book on prayer and fixed hour prayer. And he talks a lot about praying in the church versus praying with the church. So the only prayer experience that a lot of us have is where you say what happens to be on your heart in the moment using whatever words you happen to have as a part of your vocabulary. Spontaneous prayer. That's what Scott McKnight calls praying in the church. Okay? You're a part of the church, you're in the church, and you are saying a prayer. Okay? That's a perfectly valid way to pray, perfectly biblical way to pray, and we all need to be participating in it. I grew up in a church that did this kind of prayer really well. It was very, very rare for us to see somebody read a prayer, and it was, I don't remember a single time growing up where I saw somebody read a prayer that they hadn't written themselves, okay? So we, we grew a talent of knowing how to pray spontaneously using our own words. So we did, this, we did this fairly well. But interestingly enough, in the churches I grew up in, we never recited the Lord's Prayer, the one that Jesus taught us to pray. We never recited that one. And there were a few different reasons for that. One of them, and this is more than I have time to get into now, but we had a theological problem <laughs> with one line in the Lord's Prayer. Think about the irony of that for a second. Um, but secondly, we had been taught uh, by uh, old, the old King James Version, the rendition of Matthew 6, 7 says, when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. So we heard that and we said anything that's repetitive, anything that you do from week to week and you're saying the same words over and over again, um, it at least is in danger of being sinful. So even the Lord's Prayer, if it becomes repetitive and if you do it over and over again, um, you're in danger. Um, and there was almost this unwritten rule that any kind of written prayer was 
at best inferior to a spontaneous prayer and at worst dangerous to your soul, okay? And part of that was a fear of liturgy or what we thought of as liturgy. Um, we thought of liturgy as being anything that was written by somebody else to guide us in worship. Uh, what we didn't realize was that everybody that worships has a liturgy. It just might not be what you think of as liturgy. But liturgy, liturgy is a New Testament word. It's not, it's not something that people came up with or anything. It's the, the Greek word litur, liturgeo, I think, liturgeo. I'm not sure how to say it. Um, I took Greek, but I don't remember a lick of it. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a New Testament word. It's just not translated as liturgy in most English translations. The literal meaning of the word is the work of the people. Liturgy means the work of the people or public service. The idea there is that liturgy is what the people do in worship. Okay? And it's usually translated, in the English translation, it's usually translated as worship or ministering or something like that. But for some people, when they hear the word liturgy or the idea of what of, of praying things that other people have written and things like that and repetitive prayers, those kinds of things, they immediately think, well, that's dead. That's dead worship. There's no life in that because it's just reading what somebody else has written. It doesn't come from the heart, things like that. But Brian Zahn says liturgy is neither alive nor dead. It's a category. It's, it's, it's incorrect category. You cannot categorize liturgy as being alive or dead. Liturgy is either true or false. Those are the proper categories for liturgy. What's alive or dead is the worshiper. So what we need is a true liturgy and a living worshiper. Everybody has a liturgy. Whenever we gather together, whenever you sit down to pray, you have something that you do. You typically will say some of the same phrases over and over. We do the same thing here on Sunday, give or take a, a switch here and there about one, one thing or other. We have a liturgy that we follow. So liturgy isn't what's alive or dead. It's the worshiper. What we need is a true liturgy, and a living worshiper, okay? So that brings me to Scott McKnight's second category, praying with the church. Praying in the church is spontaneous prayer that you pray as a part of God's people. Praying with the church is something I've discovered as I've grown and... Um, I've been on a long journey with prayer. I, in fact, the very first sermon I preached at, here at Com Church, I think it was back in 2012, I'm sure you all remember it very well, um, was about prayer. I talked about the different stages my prayer life had gone through and how it went from almost no faith in what I was doing at all to at that point, I talked about, I, I had an understanding of prayer as relationship with God, where we're partnering with God to bring about change in the world. That's, I still believe that 100%. Since that time, I've discovered praying with the church and fixed our prayer, and I've discovered another layer to what prayer is. And that's what you might call prayer as Christian formation. Prayer as Christian formation. Um, and what I mean by that is simply this. A Hindu is formed by Hindu prayers. A Muslim is formed by Muslim prayers. A Jew is formed by Jewish prayers. A Christian is formed by praying Christian prayers. To build you into the person God created you to be, you must have a prayer life that's designed to move you in that direction. So I sought out Christian prayers, prayers that my brothers and sisters throughout history and throughout the world had used and vetted and, um, and approved as being 
something that will build you up in your faith. And you discover a lot of these. There's, there's hundreds and thousands of prayers that have been written and been used by a lot of people to do just that. And so now when I pray, I join with millions of Christians across the globe and millions of saints who have gone before us throughout history who have all prayed these same prayers in these same ways. And so rather than being a person who's only praying in the church, the things that happen to be on my heart at the moment, I'm joining with the church universal and timeless to pray. That's a beautiful thought. It's a beautiful thing. I pray with the church. Now, when you read about prayer, the, the, this type of prayer is called a lot of different things. I'm calling it fixed hour prayer because that's kind of the most literal thing you can call it, fixed hour prayer. Liturgical prayer, the divine office, the divine hours, the hours of prayer. You hear it referred to in a lot of different ways. It's all talking about this same discipline of prayer, okay? But by using this, now what happens when I sit down to pray, when I, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm incredibly inconsistent with this. I am in no ways a guru on how to do this right every time. I think part, I think part of the learning that's a part of any Christian discipline is you learn from how often you fail that you need God to sustain you through it. I fail a lot at this, but I believe in it. And I, and I, and I, and I, do, a, I do put an effort into trying to discipline myself to do it. But now when I sit down and I'm doing this, instead of trying to figure out what I'm going to say and trying to find the right words to express the things that are inexpressible within my heart, I sit down and I say what the church is saying. And this releases my mind from having to find the right words and having to formulate them into sentences that I can, that I can speak to the Lord. It frees my mind from doing all of that work and allows me just to focus my mind and my spirit on the words that I'm praying and so what we need is both praying in the church and praying with the church. We need both of those. We need lively, spontaneous, spirit-filled prayers that speak the felt needs of the moment. We need those. But we also need deep, heartfelt prayers that connect us to the global and historic Christian faith. I'm convinced that we need those uh, to form us as, as, as believers. Okay, so let's get into a little bit of the theology and scripture behind this. First of all, the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what you think God ought to do, but to be properly formed. Now, I'm not saying that prayer has no impact or that a purpose of prayer might be to, uh, to influence change in the, way, uh, in the way God acts in this world. That may be a purpose. In fact, it is a purpose of prayer. The Bible talks about that clearly. But I'm convinced that the primary purpose of prayer isn't that. It, but it's to be properly formed as people. We live, in a, we live in a society that is all about self-interest. What's in it for me? How can I advance myself? And, you know, that's, that's the, the water that we swim in. And as a part of that, it's easy for us to adopt that mindset when we approach prayer. And although we might not put it in these terms, once we come to understand that God is omnipotent, God can do anything he wants, he's got the power to change anything in this world, we grab a hold of that theological point sometimes and I think we, we subconsciously say, well, you know, if I can harness that power, I can, I can get anything done. I can do anything. So then we enter into prayer and it becomes a means of, for lack of a better term, trying to manipulate God into accomplishing our will. And uh, I don't know that we go, I don't think that we often do that intentionally uh, with, uh, with those kinds of motives, but I think that's, that's, that's what ends up happening with our prayer lives. But the purpose of prayer 
is to become properly formed as a Christian, to become a properly formed human being. And in order to do that, we cannot rely on ourselves entirely. We need to, we need to have somebody teach us the language, the practice of prayer. We need received tradition that have been, that's been passed on from generation to generation so that we know how to speak the language of prayer and we know how to be um, faithful in our prayers. Okay, so that's the, that's the theological point to make. Now let's think about how it worked out in Scripture. First of all, when you look at the Old Testament, any, any Jew who took their faith seriously throughout the Old Testament would order their day by three separate prayer rhythms. Okay, at least three. You see some verses in the Scripture that talk about seven times a day I prayed, I prayed to you. But there were, it seems like there were at least three times a day when all pious Jews uh, throughout the Old Testament would, uh, would order their day by praying. Okay, so there was this continuous rhythm. You get some little windows into it in places like Psalm 55, where the psalmist says, As for me, I call to God and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. It starts with evening because for the Jews, the day starts with the evening. Okay, that's the beginning of the day. So evening, morning, and noon, I'm praying to God. Um, you also see that in, in the story of Daniel. If you grew up in Sunday school, you can probably tell the story uh, by heart. Daniel was regularly praying three times a day. The king passes a law, says, nope, anybody who prays has to pray to me. Daniel says, nope, I'm going to pray my three times a day to the one true God, even if it costs me my life. So the king throws him into a den of lions. God saves him. Okay. But you see there that there was a regular practice that he was known for of having prayer at fixed times of the day to discipline himself, and to create a rhythm in his life that would form him. Now, when the Jews prayed, there were kind of three main components to their prayer life, okay? In addition to the Psalms, okay, they would always pray the Psalms as a part of, uh, of any prayer. That was kind of the prayer book of the church, of the, of the Jews, okay? They would pray the Shema. That's what the, they would pray it at sundown, and they would pray it uh, in the morning, and the Shema is simply Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Okay? They will pray that prayer. They will recite that. There's a lot of good evidence. It's not certain, but there's a lot of good evidence that they would also recite the Ten Commandments in the morning and in the evening. And then there was another prayer that had been written, that had been developed over, the, over time, passed down from generation to generation, that Jews to this day still pray, called the Amidah. It's, it means standing prayer, and there's actually a lot of body movements that go along with the prayer to involve the entire person in the prayer that's being prayed, okay? And they still pray it to this day, but throughout the Old Testament, these three elements and the Psalms were at least what they were doing uh, when they prayed, okay? And the reason they chose those three is because those are what, those three things express the central themes of Israel's faith Clearly and simply. And so repeating those things over and over, three times a day, four times a day, seven times a day, would create a rhythm that would recenter their focus from whatever was going on in their life onto what was central to their faith. And therefore, over time, it forms them into being the type of people God wanted them to be. Now, that's the type of environment, that's the world that Jesus and his followers were born into. Remember, the gospel came first to the Jews. These people were living the Jewish life and living according to Jewish rhythms of life. Okay? 
And so it would have been impossible if they took their faith seriously at all, it would have been almost impossible for them not to be people who participated in these same rhythms. Uh, Scott McKnight, once again, uh, he says, Jesus was spiritually nurtured by pious parents in a world where the sacred rhythm of prayer shaped spiritual formation. Jesus didn't adopt that rhythm without reflection or alteration. One might say that Jesus actually reshaped the sacred rhythmical prayer practices of his world so that they would reflect his own kingdom mission. He was born to pious parents and he lived a pious life in a Jewish world. So he was involved in regular fixed hour uh, prayer. Okay? So the Jews did it. Jesus and his followers did it. And then it was passed down uh, for the church. Jesus laid down a foundation that the church then ended up following for a new rhythm of prayer that was similar to the old, but he, he established something that, that ch the, the church grabbed onto and has been doing ever since. Um, now the foundation Jesus laid for prayer, once again, just like, just like what he did growing up, <laughs> the Psalms were key. You cannot uh, you cannot get around the fact that Jesus was always quoting the Psalms. You get a sense that Jesus may have known them all by heart. I mean, when he spoke, he couldn't help but the language of the Psalms just came out in the words that he said. In fact, a lot of the things that we often uh, appreciate that Jesus said were times when he was really quoting the Psalms that he, that he held dear to himself. A few examples here. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. It says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He's just regurgitating language. I mean, he's teaching us, but he's doing it using language from the psalm, Psalm 37. Um, when he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, talking about his identity and, and knowing that he was going to end up being rejected as God's uh, Messiah, he's quoting from Psalm 118 as he teaches them about who he is. And then one more, of course, there's, there's, we could go over a lot of more examples of this, but one more example in his passion. When he looks up to heaven, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22 there. So even in the deepest, darkest moments of his life, the language that comes to his mind to speak what's going on in his heart is the language of prayers that he learned as a part of a prayer practice. He had been formed to, to pray in this way. And that's why these words came out as he taught. He prayed the Psalms. The Psalms were integral to his prayer life. Um, Brian Zond, uh, he says, when we pray the Psalms, we're continuing a 3,000-year-old tradition, a tradition practiced by Jesus and the apostles. We pray the Psalms not to express what we feel, but to learn to feel what they express. In praying the Psalms, we learn to experience the whole range of human emotion in a way that's healthy and healing. Praying the Psalms may be among the most effective exercises available to us for preserving mental and emotional health. So praying the Psalms, if we're going to pray like Jesus, if we're going to walk in his footsteps in our prayer practice, we cannot neglect the Psalms. Another thing that has to be a part of what we do if we're going to pray the way Jesus modeled is we have to pray the Lord's Prayer. Earlier I said, if somebody came up to me and asked, how do I pray? My instinct would be to answer, well, you just talk to God. But how did Jesus answer that question? When they walked up to him and said, Rabbi, teach us to pray. He didn't give him some abstract theory about prayer. And he didn't say, well, you, you just talk to God, whatever's on your heart. He gave them a prayer to pray. He said, here, pray this. 
And that's exactly what they were expecting him to do because that's what a rabbi did back then. The rabbi would, uh, would compose or find a prayer for his followers that would affect whatever they were going through in life. And he would say, here, pray this prayer. And so Jesus composes a prayer that says, if you're going to follow me, here's what you pray. In Luke 11, that's where, that's where they approach him. He was praying in a circumstance. He was involved in prayer. This was a regular practice of his, of course. And when he finished, it says, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. And he goes on with the Lord's Prayer. In fact, a better translation of that, that phrase in yellow there, would probably be whenever you pray, recite this. It's a little, it's a little more definitive than what, than what kind of comes across in the way it's typically translated. So the Lord's Prayer is really something that should be recited whenever we come together to pray in following the teaching of Jesus. Okay, so the Psalms, the Lord's Prayer, those are the bare minimum for what a prayer practice would look like if it's, if it's, if it's happening the way Jesus modeled. Okay, another point. Fixed hour prayer has been a part of the church since its inception. The Jews did it. Jesus and his followers did it. Jesus laid a new path for it. And, and the church has been doing it ever since. Okay, the early Christians participated in praying at least three times a day. You get a little window into that in Acts chapter 2, just after Pentecost. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And a lot of translations just say the breaking of bread and prayers. But there's actually an article there in the Greek. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Meaning they didn't just devote themselves to the general concept of prayer. The early church devoted themselves to specific prayers, to praying in specific ways as a way to form themselves. Okay? One more example. Acts chapter 3. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. So this is what they inherited from their Jewish heritage and they continued doing it as Christians as a way to form their Christian faith. And then uh, there's another work that was written just after the New Testament was completed, uh, the Didache. It's a manual on early Christian life from around the turn of the first century, so really close to when the New Testament was written. And it talks about Christian practice, and it says, look, if you're a Christian, you need to be praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. It gets real specific about that. So from the very beginning of the church, fixed, praying, at, praying prayers at fixed hours of the day that were formational prayers was a part of what, the, of, of what Christian formation was all about. Okay? So you've got the Lord's Prayer and you've got the Psalms and then the church over time starts to compose its own prayers. Wise people in the church that had a deep relationship with Jesus would write down prayers that they prayed and other people would get a hold of those and start praying those prayers too. And over the centuries you get thousands of, of, of deep, uh, deeply vetted prayers that the church has prayed. Um, and people compiled those prayers and they combined them with the Psalms and the Lord's Prayer and they combined them with um, other scriptures and, and, and hymns that people have written and they combined them into these things that we call prayer books. And there's prayer books out there from all kinds of different traditions. You can get a Celtic prayer book. You can get an Episcopal prayer book. You can get a Catholic one, an ecumenical one. You know, there's all kinds of prayer books that are out there, but they all have this in common. They're drawing from the tradition of prayer that we've inherited from Christians that have gone before us, and they're putting it in a usable format so that we can do our best to pray the way Jesus modeled. 
Now remember, prayer books are not intended to be a replacement for spontaneous prayer. We're talking about something in addition to the spontaneous prayers that we pray. In fact, but lately there's been, it seems like there's been a, a bonanza lately of people publishing all kinds of new prayer books that are out there. So you, don't, you shouldn't have any trouble finding them if you look for them. But I can't find a better resource for a beginner. If you've never done fixed hour liturgical prayer before, I can't imagine a better resource for a beginner than a, a three book series uh, written by a, a woman named Phyllis Tickle. Um, I've got one version of it here that I'm going to use here in a second. Um, called The Daily, or The Divine Hours. Okay, And what I think makes her so good for beginners is that it compiles the best of all of these different traditions and kind of compiles them into one easy-to-use prayer book. It updates the archaic language. It, it puts them in a really usable format. Some of the older prayer books that go back centuries, you have to you look a prayer up here and then you flip over to a different section of the book to find the psalm and then you flip over to another section. It can get really, really difficult and cumbersome, especially for somebody who's new to the practice. So she did, a, she did the church a, a, a real blessing when she, when she put it in a usable format like that. So that's one reason. It's usable. It's a compilation of, of a lot of different sources. Um, and it's also fairly short. If you're jumping into fixed hour prayer and you've never done it before, some of the older prayer books have deep and, uh, and extremely meaningful prayer sessions that could last you 30 minutes or so. Um, and that's a big bite to chew for somebody who hasn't, who's not accustomed to that. Her prayers are shorter than that. It's still probably longer than your typical, uh, than, than you, you may be used to praying in one setting, but it's, a, it's, it's, a easier, it's an easier chunk to deal with for a beginner. Um, so, I, so that's one that I would recommend. Um, there's also a lot of apps out there. You search your, your, your app store uh, for whatever your chosen platform is. There's a lot of prayer, daily prayer apps that you can use to, to get liturgical prayers as well. I'm using one right now put out by a group called uh, Mission St. Clair that, that, that I like a lot. Um, there's a lot of resources out there. I can point you to some. I know Thad's been involved in this and he can point you to some. There's probably others here who have, who have dabbled in it or, or are actively doing it that can, they can point you towards good prayer books and resources. But let me make a few practical points and then we're gonna close with uh, a liturgical prayer, okay? If you're going to take this on as a discipline, remember that it is a discipline. It's not easy. It might sound easy to say, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll start praying three times a day. That's good. And I just get to read the prayer. I don't have to think of it on my own. So that's, that's easy. Any change of the rhythm of your life that's going to stick and that's gonna have meaning, it's gonna be hard, okay? That's why New Year's resolutions typically don't stick, right? Because it involves changing a way of life. So go in prepared to do it as a discipline. That's what this whole summer is about for us, learning ways to discipline ourselves so that we walk closer with the Lord. So understand this is a discipline. Secondly, understand it's countercultural. We live in a culture that does not reward you for pausing your progress three or four times a day. To pause and do something that's not productive in the world's sense of it. It's not, it's not pushing the business forward. It's not, uh, it's not any of the things that the world values. As Americans, we're used to being entertained, right? As the great theologian Kurt Cobain would say, here we are now, entertain us, right? That's our mentality. Entertain us. I'm here, entertain me. That's the way we judge things. That's the way we, we assess how valuable things are to us is how entertaining, what's their entertainment value. So there's a tendency to approach prayer time and give it kind of a thumbs up or a thumbs down. You know, how did I feel after that? Was it, was it a good prayer session? If I felt good or if it entertained me in some way? 
Don't do that. When you go into prayer, don't ask yourself, how did I do? The only thing you should ask yourself is, did I pray? Just, did I pray? Am I doing what I've committed to do to, over the long term, draw me closer to the Lord? Okay? Because formative prayer like this, it rarely has any immediate feedback. I'm, I'm going to be the worst salesman here, but I'm not, it's, this isn't a commodity to sell. Formative prayer has no immediate feedback, and it has virtually no entertainment value. Okay? And because of that, if you engage in fixed hour, fixed hour liturgical prayer, it may be the most courageous and countercultural thing you ever do. <laughs> because nothing else in life do we assess um, the way you assess a prayer, a prayer practice. Okay, so this is, this is you going to the gym. This is you getting in shape. This is you forming your soul. All right? Third thing, have realistic expectations. When I go into something new like this, I tend to jump in with both feet and, you know, I'll say, okay, I'm going to spend an hour three times a day in prayer and, and I end up biting off more I can chew, burn myself out, and then I, and then I give up on it. Um, have realistic expectations. Um, begin with a, with a minimal expectation. If you want to say, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to start doing morning prayer. I'm going to take 10, 15, 20 minutes in the morning that I didn't used to take and I'm going to start doing morning prayer. And I'll I'll start with that. That's fine. Just do it. Or if you want to do morning and evening, or if you think you can do three times a day, do three times a day. The point is to pick a time and do it and stick with it and discipline yourself. Okay? Next one, find a space for silence. The space that you, that you pray in has a huge impact on how effective your prayers are. Uh, not how well God hears them. God hears them regardless, but how effective they are in focusing your mind and refocusing your faith. Okay? So prayer requires us to be quiet, to quiet our souls and redirect our attention to God so that we can be attentive to what God is, is doing with us in our prayer time. So find a space where silence is encouraged, where silence is possible. Sit in front of a window with a peaceful view. Turn on some soft music without lyrics so you're not going to get distracted by those words. Put on some soft music if you want to. Look out a window or go into a church building that might be near where you live or go into a chapel or even if you're just sitting in the living room full of clutter, find a space where you know that you can, as well as possible, reduce the, the noise of life for the time that you're praying. Next, connect your prayer rhythms with the natural rhythms of your day. If you start out by saying, I'm going to pray at 6 a.m., at noon, and at 6 p.m., and that's what I'm going to do, I guarantee you from day to day, you're going to have interferences at that exact time. I, I recommend you don't pick an exact time, but you find what your natural rhythms are. You wake up, you get ready, you go to work, you take a lunch break, you come home from work later, you get ready for bed. At somewhere in those natural transitions of your day, where you're naturally transitioning to something else, that's where you plug it in. It might not be at the same time every day when you actually end up doing it. But it's during these transitions uh, that, you, that you sit down and focus on God. The point is to find a break that works for you and stick with it until it becomes a habit. Okay? And then the last practical point here, you need variety and you need flexibility. Use different prayer books from different traditions. Um, don't feel guilty if you move on from one prayer book and, and, and start using a different one. Each prayer book has different feel, has a different way of creating a rhythm, and some of them just might not work for you. The only rule about prayer is don't have rules about prayer. Just pray. 
Just do it um, and make a habit of it. So what I've found in my practice with liturgical fixed hour prayer is that they reorient me. Uh, the best example I have of this is a prayer that I pray at night, almost every night when I put Audrey to bed. She's memorized it now and we pray it together. It's, uh, it's the final prayer from the evening, for the evening from the Book of Common Prayer, which is an Episcopal or Anglican prayer book. It says, Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night, and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ, give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, Pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all for your love's sake. Amen. So I pray that at night. And no matter how well my day has gone or no matter how badly my day has gone, this prayer automatically focuses me on the needs of other people. At, at a time often when I wouldn't think to pray for the other people. Because the, whole, the needs of my day and the needs of my family are so uh, palpable in my spirit. And so I'm reminded by praying this prayer that there's a sovereign and powerful God that sits in heaven who has anything that we want um, in the palm of his hand. And all those who need him are in the palm of his hand. And this is just one prayer example, but it, this, is, this is the one that's been most meaningful, meaningful for me lately. And, uh, and it reorients you. What I'd like to do with the few minutes that we, that we have left, I'm probably already over time, I don't know. We're going to pray. We're going to do a liturgical prayer. If you had adopted this prayer yesterday, this practice yesterday, and you were on your third prayer session of the day doing your evening prayer, and if you were using the divine hours, this is what you would pray. So we're going to dim the lights here. We're going to create a, an environment that's conducive to prayer and to silence. And we're going to pray the hours. This is the Vespers office, as they say. It's just the evening prayer time. Come, let us bow down and bend the knee and kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. I will call upon you, O God, for you will answer me. Incline your ear to me and hear my words. You are God. I praise you. You are the Lord. I acclaim you. You are the eternal Father. All creation worships you. Throughout the world, the Holy Church acclaims you. Father of majesty unbounded, your true and only Son, worthy of all worship, and the Holy Spirit, advocate and guide. As these have been from the beginning, so they are now, and evermore shall be. Alleluia. All praise to thee, my God, this night, for all the blessings of the light. Keep me, O oh, keep me, King of kings, beneath thine own almighty wings. Forgive me, Lord, for thy dear Son, the ill that I this day have done, that with the world, myself, and thee, I, ere I sleep, at peace may be. O oh, may my soul on thee repose, and with sweet sleep my eyelids close. Sleep that may 
me more vigorous make to serve my God when I awake. When in the night I sleepless lie, my soul with heavenly thoughts supply. Let no ill dreams disturb my rest, no powers of darkness me molest. Oh, when shall I an endless day forever chase dark sleep away? And hymns divine with angels sing, all praise to thee, eternal King. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. O Lord, you are my portion and my cup. It's you who uphold my lot. I will bless the Lord that gives me counsel. My heart teaches me night after night. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not fall. My heart therefore is glad and my spirit rejoices. My body also shall rest in hope. For you will not abandon me to the grave, nor let your Holy One see the pit. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. O oh Lord, you are my portion and my cup. It is you who uphold my lot. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Holy Father, creator and sustaining wisdom of all that is, both in heaven and on earth, take from me those thoughts, actions, and objects that are hurtful. Give me instead those things that are profitable for me and all who seek rightly to praise you. I ask this grace in the company of all believers and through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, stay with me, for evening is at hand and the day is past. Be my companion in the way, kindle my heart and awaken hope that I may know you as you are revealed in Scripture and in the breaking of bread. Grant this for the sake of your love toward me.